Thank you, Tom. Uh, wonderful to be back here with you. Uh, last time I was here, I was in a coat and tie. So it just occurred to me at the last minute, maybe I should call and ask, uh, text Andy and ask, what's the dress code? And he said, dress comfortable. Uh, I think he, uh, he knew that I had been at the beach for the last week. I haven't worn long pants in over a week. And so uh, this is probably as good as it's going to get for the four weeks that I'm here. Now that I, I see a number of you are in shorts, don't worry, I won't wear shorts. Uh, that'd be an image you'd have difficulty scrubbing from your brain. But uh, looking forward to spending these four weeks with you. And what we're going to do is we're going to take a deep dive in the book of Ephesians and particularly the fourth chapter of the book of Ephesians. So these will be four messages that are a unit coming from Ephesians chapter 4. And I'm going to ask you to take God's Word and open it to that right now so that we can be prepared to hear what God has to say to us this morning. One of the things we're going to see in Ephesians chapter 4 is the high value that God places upon walking together in unity. And uh, as we look at this passage of Scripture, I think many of us may have either seen, hopefully, uh, possibly all of us, have either seen or taken part in a three-legged race. You know what I'm talking about when I talk about, hands up, you know what I'm talking about when I talk about a three-legged race? You know, that's where you have two people who are partners together and they're joined together by having a rope tied around uh, one of their legs and and attached to each other. And in a three-legged race, everybody knows individual talent is not what matters. In fact, you can have two people that may be the the slowest two people on the playground if they get into a foot race, but when you tie their feet together and they work together, they can outperform even the most athletic uh, two people who are not working together. So what matters and what makes them effective is learning to walk together in unity. And that's the call that God puts upon us. In fact, Jesus, when he was praying for his church, he said, by this the world will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another, and that you are one even as I, Jesus, and the Father are one. And so he praised his heavenly Father and he says, I pray that they may be one as we are one. You know, it's always good to talk about unity when you're coming into a church that's not fighting. <laughs> I mean, this would be a really a rough message if, if something were going on here that I didn't know about. Maybe there is, and I don't know about it. And so I'm just going to just pretend like I don't know anything that's going on here. But this is what God would have us declare this morning as we look to His Word together. And so I'm going to ask you to follow along with me as I begin the reading of His Word in Ephesians 4, verse 1. Therefore, I... The prisoner in the Lord urge you to live worthy of the calling you have received with all humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now Paul begins this passage using the word therefore. And the old saying Whenever you come across the word therefore, you need to ask yourself the question, what's that therefore? And the reason we have the word therefore is because Paul is communicating to us. He's using this word to say, I'm about to tell you something, but before I tell you this, 
I want you to know that what I'm about to tell you is based upon what I've already told you. So he's told us something very important. And then he says, now I'm going to make some application points based upon what I've already told you. Now, uh, all of Paul's letters typically divide themselves very evenly on, uh, uh, on the basis of uh, what we are to believe and how we are to behave. And so if we were to take a, a view of the book of Ephesians from 40,000 feet, and we were to look back on the book just in broad uh, deal, what we find in the first three chapters of Ephesians is that we would find in the first three chapters of Ephesians that God is talking about our, our horizontal relationship with Him. It's about my individual relationship with Him. And then we move over into chapter 4 through 6, and what we find out is about our vertical relationship with each other. That's just exactly the way the Ten Commandments are laid out, right? The first four had to do with my relationship with God. The last six had to do with our relationships with one another. And so Paul's letter divides in that way. We notice also that when we look at the book of Ephesians from 40,000 feet and we look down on what it's trying to say to us, what we begin to see there is that in the first half of the book, it's about how God sees us in Christ. And when we move to the second half of the book, it's about how the world should see Christ in us. So what we have in the first half of the book or we have all of these things that have to do with our riches in Christ Jesus. And we sang about those this morning. We see about our riches in Christ Jesus. And when we move over into the second half of the book, what we see is it's about our responsibilities in Christ. In the first half of the book, the emphasis is on wealth. In the second half of the book, the key word that Paul uses several times in chapters 4 through 6 is the word walk. And is that word walk that gives us the title of our message this morning. It's God's expectations for our walking together in unity. And what he's trying to say to us as we zero in on what he's just taught in Ephesians 1 through 3 is beginning in chapter 1, what he talks about is what God has done for us in Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, he talks about what Christ has done in us. And then in the verses leading up to our passage this morning, in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at the 11th verse, and going right up to the point where we begin today, He's talking about what the Lord God has done around us and between us to make us one in Christ. You see what the Bible's telling us is that we're in a three-legged race. When you trust Jesus as your Savior, your life is linked to Jesus. And at the very same moment, your life is tied by Christ to the lives of every other person who professes faith in Christ Jesus. Now, there are some certain expectations that God lays out for us about walking together in unity. And the first expectation is this. Our high calling sets the standard for our conduct. Now, reading on in verse 1, you notice that as he begins, he says, Therefore... 
Based on all these things I've told you about the riches that are ours in Christ, here are our responsibilities in Christ Jesus. And he starts off saying, I urge you, and you've heard this word in other places, I beseech you or I entreat you. In fact, in Romans chapter 12, it says that very thing. I, I beseech you, brethren, or I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God. What is he saying? He's saying here, on the basis of all the wonderful things that we've experienced in Christ, on the basis of the grace and the mercy he has shown to us, and now he's going to make his appeal. You remember what the Old Testament said to the Jews? God said, I have chosen you, and I will bless you if you obey me. But that's not Paul's tone here. Paul's tone here is something very different from that. Having laid out all the riches that are ours in Christ Jesus, all the blessings that we enjoy because of Him, everything that God has done for us that we have experienced, he says, on the basis of that, I urge you, live worthy of the calling you have received. Now, a parallel truth to that is that the higher one's calling, the higher one's conduct should be. Now, we all obey by, uh, abide by the laws of the land, and uh, there's laws that apply to every one of us. And we're not going to go into details about that, but we know that's true. In fact, there are some occupations that set the standard for just that minimum level of obeying the laws of the land. But if one were to be considered a nominee for the position of Supreme Court Justice, the standard of conduct for that person would be raised above many of the normal standards that apply to all of us. For example, if it were discovered that a nominee were to have used prejudicial comments, or if they had uh, been involved in any kind of sexual misconduct, that would be grounds for them being disqualified. You see, the higher one's calling, the higher one's conduct must be. Now, there's no higher conduct, uh, no higher calling, Paul says, than to be considered a part of the bride of Jesus Christ, our Savior. We are wed to the Lord Jesus Christ by his own choosing, by his own calling, by his own sacrifice, by his own blood. We have been united to Christ, and through that we have been joined to one another. And so he says, believers, I urge you to live worthy of the calling we have received. I was studying this passage, and I've had a few weeks to live with it. And while reading through this passage of Scripture, something just hit me one day when I was reading it and I was thinking that when he begins he doesn't just jump by saying I therefore I urge you to live worthy of the calling you have received he 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 inserts a statement there and it's easy to overlook it in fact when I first read it like you like most of you you probably just read it as kind of a historical aside okay that's a good fact to know I Paul the prisoner of the Lord, before he urges us. He describes himself as how? The prisoner of who? The Lord. I found it interesting that Paul doesn't 
described himself as the prisoner of Nero, which in fact were the truth at that very moment. I find it that Paul doesn't talk about the fact that he's in a Roman prison, but he describes himself as the prisoner of the Lord. By the way, this isn't the first time that Paul has used that phrase. In this very book, in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, look at it for yourself. He says the same thing, except slightly differently. He says, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. So now he tells us he's a prisoner of the Lord. He doesn't see himself as the prisoner of Nero. He doesn't look at the prison that he is in. But rather when Paul looks at himself, how does he see himself? He sees a purpose. He says, all these things that are happening to me are part of God's plan for my life and they're the result of something that you and I fail to apply to our own lives often and that is the statement that is made in Romans chapter 6 verse 22. And in Romans chapter 6, verse 22, the scripture says this, Since you have been set free from sin and have become enslaved to God. We think we've been free from sin so we can just do whatevs. I mean, when we look at ourselves, we think that we are in a position where God has set us free. Now I can just get on with living my life. Paul didn't see himself that way. On the Damascus road, when the Lord shone himself to Paul, blinding him with a bright light and speaking to him one-on-one -on -one as a person, he revealed himself, I, Jesus, am the one whom you are persecuting. I will show you what great things you must suffer. Perhaps this is something that ought to be said at the marriage altar. heard about two guys who were talking with each other about their marriages and one guy was bragging he said I knew I had married Mrs. Wright what I didn't know was her first name was always <laughs> that'd be real funny in the car on the way home <laughs> you see there are certain things that I do in my marriage that improve my married life. And I'm not going to say that that's not a good enough motivation for me to take out the trash and to help clean up the dishes and to pick up after myself when I'm at home. I mean, that's a good motivation for me because that'll make me have a happier marriage. Yeah, I want to have a happy marriage. But that's the wrong approach to marriage. The right approach to marriage is not my happiness, but my holiness. See, the motive for getting married is because marriage is a reflection of the church's relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, which is a holy relationship. And when I get married, there are all sorts of things when I make that commitment. There are all sorts of things that I will experience, and not all of them are pleasant. But do you know that God is using all of those things as a part of the sanctification process to make me into the image of Jesus Christ? Paul says he's a prisoner in the Lord. 
not because he just did whatever he wanted to do, but it's the result of him obeying Jesus that put him in prison. <laughs> now you see he holds himself up as the model and the means is the Spirit of God working in and through our lives in those situations of life. But think how differently it changes your viewpoint when you begin to see that the things that are happening to me are things that God is using for me, not against me. So the first expectation we see that God has for our walking together in unity is this principle that our high calling sets the standard for our calling and the higher our calling, the higher our conduct is to be. But there's a second expectation. We see it in verses 2 and 3. God's second expectation is the grace we have been shown must be shared. The grace we've been shown must be shared. The grace God has shown to me is the grace that I must share with others. Look at what he writes. Continuing on. I urge you to live worthy of the calling you have received. Verse 2. With all humility and gentleness. With patience. Bearing with one another in love. Making every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. A high calling doesn't justify a haughty attitude. You and I, though redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ, are no better than the rest of the persons in the world. You see, our lives before coming to know Christ, the reality is we were lost sinners. And the only reason we are no longer lost in our sin is because Jesus Christ himself purchased our pardon, cleansed us, made us whole, and made us his. It's not a result of anything we've done. It's what God has done for us and how thankful we are for that. There's nothing we can do to earn it. And so he calls us to share these things that have already been shared with us from God. And I noticed some things about these attitudes we are to have, looking at the list in verse 2 and 3. I mean, just walking down through it. The first is that I noticed that the attitudes Paul calls for are suitable for Christians because they're the attitudes of Jesus himself. Jot down these verses. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. John chapter 13, verses 13 through 15. These are two passages that describe the attitude of Jesus himself. What does Philippians 2 say? Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself. By assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What Paul is saying to us, these are the attitudes of Jesus. And this is why we should model these things and share them with others. Because this is what Jesus modeled for us. 
And the Christ in me lives this out in my life as I yield to him. And it's only when I take the place of the servant as Jesus took that place that we can evidence the attitudes that scripture requires of us. Remember before eating the last supper with his disciples? Jesus got up, took a basin of water, took a towel, went around to the disciples, who, by the way, <laughs> you know, we, we see the picture of the Lord's Supper. We see them all seated around the table like we all had those, you know, four legs on the chair. But that is not the way they ate. They ate on the floor with their feet crossed. So that would put your dirty feet. You've been walking in sandals or barefoot, dirt all over them. That would put your feet right at table height. So this was normally something just customarily that was done by a person in the house who was responsible to wash the feet of those who were going to be dining. What does Jesus do? He takes a basin of water. He girds himself with a towel. He kneels down. He goes person to person washing their feet. He comes to Peter. What does Peter do? He says, whoa, 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 whoa. What's wrong with this picture? But it is that resistance of Peter that creates a teachable moment. So what does Jesus say in John chapter 13? He explains it this way. Peter, men, if I be your teacher, you call me Lord, and if I being your teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash each other's feet. You see, these are the attitudes that are befitting for us because first of all, these are the attitudes that were modeled for us by Jesus himself. But secondly, the inference of these verses is that the church is not perfect. Hello? We are not yet perfect. <clears throat> now some people think they are. And some people may be closer to perfect than others. But we are not perfect and we will not be perfect until the Lord Jesus Christ returns to make us His own and to complete the sanctification process, making us over in His image. And we see this throughout the Scripture. It says to us, as He's writing to the churches in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, jot down these verses. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 through 10, and verse 12. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Listen to what these verses say to us about the current state of the church. 1 Corinthians 13, love never ends, but as for prophecies, they'll come to an end. As for tongues, they'll cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. For now we see only a reflection in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am known. What's Paul telling us? He says, this is not the end of the show. This is the warm-up act. This is only the beginning of what's going to happen. We are not yet perfect, but we will be made perfect. We know this to be true because when John is writing to those who are Christ followers, he says to them in 1 John 1 verse 8, If we say we have no sin, we make God a liar. And 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 says what? It says, 
to us. Brothers, we do not yet know what we will be like, but this we do know. When we see Him, we will be like Him. We're not like Him yet. In fact, everywhere we turn in the Bible, we look over and we begin to read about the churches that Paul writes to. We read the churches in the book of Acts. We read about those seven churches in the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3. And what do we see about all of those churches? They're not perfect. We need these attitudes because the church is not yet perfect. We also need these attitudes because Christian unity does not come automatically or easily. Did you see that in verse 3? Look at that phrase. Make every effort to keep the unity. We're going to have to put in some sweat equity. This isn't just going to roll out at our feet. It's available. It's there. In fact, it already exists. But what we've got to do is we've got to make every effort to maintain, to protect, to promote, to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Jesus said this is one of the key things by which the world will know that I am in you, I'm working through you. And he said in John chapter 13 again, verse 34 and 35, I give you a new command, love one another. Just as I have loved you, so you ought to love one another. By this everyone will know you are my disciples if you have loved one for another. Later that same evening, Jesus spoke to the Heavenly Father on our behalf. And uh, Tom, we were singing about the intercession of Jesus for us. You want to know the real Lord's Prayer? Read John chapter 17. This is a real prayer. Jesus prayed for us. Listen to what he prayed. I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. May they all be one as you Father are in me and I in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. Now I don't know there's many people in here who can even relate to a reference to Lost in Space, an old TV show. It's pretty hokey compared to today's, uh, you know, all the things that we have available to animation. You know, it was it was really weird. But anyway, whenever there was danger, there was this robot who would say, Warning, Will Robinson. Warning, Will Robinson. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Man, these words need to come to us with a big warning. Because there is nothing about this that the world promotes. In fact, if anything, the world tells you, this is like uh, COVID-19. You need to get rid of this as quick as you can. You need to avoid these things. In fact, what does the world teach us? The world doesn't teach us humility. The world teaches us self-assertiveness. Get out there. 
Push hard. Be the first in your class. Get ahead of everybody. That's the where you need to be. You want to be way out there in front of everyone else. Get up there to the top of the mountain. No matter what it takes, push them aside, beat them, kick them, stomp them down. Get up there to the top and stay there as the king of the mountain. The world doesn't offer seminars on humility. But on self-esteem and self-confidence, the world doesn't teach gentleness, but it does give instruction on assertiveness. The attitudes which the Bible proposes are those which the world often opposes. And then I noticed that the reason for Paul's appeal to these particular attributes, these attitudes, is because the attitudes which are suitable for Christians will not be found in our flesh, but they'll only be found in manifestations of the Spirit. You couldn't help but reading this list, but this is a partial listing of the fruit of the Spirit that we're given in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. Now, what's it called? The fruit of the Spirit. I can't get to these things in my flesh. I don't have the ability to be able to do that, although some may have the kind of self-assertiveness, the kind of self-esteem that they might be able to push through and exhibit these things for a little while on their own. These are not things that we can do in our flesh. These are only things that happen when the Holy Spirit is producing the unity that it speaks of in verse 3. And the result is the believer walking in the Spirit. And a believer who is walking in the Spirit, who has this mind, is one who is living in unity with other believers. And without it, it can't happen. So Christian unity is divinely created. But what Paul is trying to say is that it's humanly guarded. See, we don't have to do anything to create the unity. It already exists. It's the unity of the Spirit that exists in the body of Christ. But what must we do? We have to guard it. We have to protect it. There's a third expectation. We didn't read these verses earlier, but we're going to read them now. The third expectation is this. Children in the same family loving and serving the same father ought to be able to walk together in unity. Can I get an amen? <laughs> Look at verses 4 through 6. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. I don't have anybody in particular in mind when I make this comment. I'm just saying if you've watched uh, television programs or you've paid any attention to some of the uh, preaching and teaching that goes on in our world, you, you surely must understand that, that, that there is a kind of teaching that exists out there that tries to unite people on something other than what's biblical truth. And I was searching for some words to try to phrase the, that kind of teaching. And a couple of examples came to mind. There, there's one example that kind of would summarize that kind of teaching that goes like this. You know, we're all talking to the same God. We're just using different names for God. You familiar with this? Another one goes kind of like this. I don't want to get bogged down in doctrine. Let's just love one another. 
friend, let me remind you of something. Paul doesn't even begin to speak about behavior and attitudes until he spent three chapters talking about doctrine. Doctrine matters. Biblical truth matters. Any unity that is built upon anything other than Bible truth is shaky ground. And so he speaks to us and he says to us in this passage, I want to share with you seven realities that unite all true Christians, non-negotiables. These are things that all true Christians, and these things unite believers in Christ. Number one, he says there's one body. What body is that? That's the body of Christ. There's one body in which every believer is a member. And how do we become a member? We are placed in the body of Christ by the Spirit of God at the time of our salvation. One body is the model for many local bodies that God has manifested across the world. Now some people say, well, you know, I'm a part of the body of Christ, you know, the church universal, but I don't want to be a part of First Baptist. I believe in the church universal. That's what God came to create. But I don't want to be a part of a local body of believers. I don't have to do that. Well, boy, you have just tiptoed around about everything that's taught in the New Testament about what it means to be a part of the church. Jesus referred to the church many times. The New Testament refers to the church many times. There are only two times in the New Testament where it's a reference to the church universal. All the other references to the church are local bodies of believers of Christ. And when the Spirit baptizes me and makes me a member of the body of Christ... That is where I discover and utilize my spiritual gifts for one purpose and one purpose alone, and that is the maturation, the maturity of the believers who are around me that we may all attain to the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, I am not great at anatomy, but I do know this. You'll never see an eyeball walking down the street unattached to a body. You just won't see it. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you need to be attached to a local body of believers. There's one body. That one body is the body of Christ in which every believer is a member. And then he says in verse 4, there's one spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. You know, there are at least a dozen references to the Holy Spirit in the book of Ephesians. It's a prevalent term. He talks about the ministry of the Holy Spirit a great deal in this book. And the reason why he does this is because the Spirit of God is essential to us being able to live the Christian life. I mean, without the Spirit, we can't do it. It's not within us. It's not about us. And the same Holy Spirit that indwells and seals every believer and enables us to grasp the hope of His calling, the riches of the glory of His inheritance, and surpassing greatness of His power, it is through that Spirit that the church is made the dwelling place of God. We all share one hope. The hope of His calling. That's the full enjoyment of the blessings of God in Christ. Peter points to that time when Jesus is going to return. 
he refers to that hope because that hope is when everything that's wrong in this world will be made right. Do you know everything in this world is currently out of its place? Everything. We're out of place because we're citizens of heaven. Satan's out of place. He roams around on the earth like a, a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He belongs in hell. Jesus is out of place. He's in heaven, but he's returning. Jesus belongs seated on the throne, reigning over a new heaven and a new earth. And when Jesus returns, everything that's wrong is going to be set right. That's the hope of his calling. And then we have one Lord, Jesus Christ. He redeemed us by his blood and made us his own. I don't know if you do art about the way I do, but I'm not fancy artist. I mean, I am maybe average at stick men. You know what I'm talking about when I talk about stick people? So here's what I want you to do. I want you to draw two chairs on your piece of paper, okay? Just two chairs. Real simple. A back, a line out, and a down. I can do that. Two chairs. You know this morning that every person in here is seated in one of those two chairs? On one chair, on the seat of it, just write the word self. And on the other chair, make a cross. And what that picture depicts for us is that every person in this room Every blood-bought believer in Jesus Christ is either living with self on the throne or Jesus Christ as Lord of our lives. Paul makes his appeal on this basis and then he says to us, we all share one faith. There's only one way to experience salvation. Salvation is... By grace, through faith, not of works, lest any one of us should be able to boast. And that is the only way any one of us are saved, and that is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who purchased our salvation. Then he says in verse 5, there's one baptism. Now, baptism has two applications to us in the New Testament. The first, obviously, is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The only way we get into the family of God is that we are baptized into the body of Christ. Get that picture in your head. You have been baptized into the body of Christ. You are in Christ. Christ is in you. That's the baptism of the Spirit. But then also we know there's water baptism. Jesus submitted to water baptism. And he submitted to water baptism and then before he ascended into heaven, he said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And he's referring to that water baptism. Now we know that the water baptism that Jesus references there is symbolic, but it's commanded. It's not optional. 
It doesn't mean that we are saved or not saved, whether or not we've experienced water baptism, but it does say that if we have experienced salvation, we'll want to give a testimony to other people of what Jesus Christ has done for us. You may be here this morning a believer in Jesus Christ, but you have never submitted to water baptism. Water baptism is by immersion. It's a picture. The Bible describes it beautifully in the book of Romans in the 6th chapter. In Romans chapter 6, when the Bible is speaking to us about that one baptism, it says this. All of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death. That's going under the watery grave. Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. So consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's the picture of baptism. But it's just a farce if that's not true of our lives. I died. But I came to life with Jesus. And I didn't just come to life with Jesus. I came to life because of Jesus' life raised me from the dead. And so he goes on and he says, as such, verse 6, we all have one God and Father. The Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's above all. He's working through all and in all. We are children of the same family loving and serving the same Father so we ought to be able to walk together in unity. Now I want to make a couple of observations as we wrap up. The first one is this. And I don't want to make too much of it but I don't think it's coincidental. Did you notice that Paul listed seven basic spiritual realities that unite all Christians? Seven. If you know anything about biblical numerology, then what you know is that the number seven in the Bible is representative of completeness and perfection. What Paul is talking to us about here, experiencing unity in the Spirit and living out our calling in Jesus Christ, he's talking about something that is perfect and complete. But there's something else I want you to see. And that's in verse 4. He talks about God, the Holy Spirit. In verse 5... He talks about God the Son. And in verse 6, he talks about God the Father. That's not accidental. You see, what he's holding up for us here is the model and the means for our experiencing unity in Christ. He's holding up the Holy Trinity. I got to thinking about that and reflecting on my vacation this last week. We went to the beach, 
we being my wife, Julie, our daughter, Lauren, our son-in-law, Jason, and their five boys, our five grandsons by them, ages eight, seven, six, you get where this is going? Five, three, who will be four before the others have their next birthday. I never knew, Sonny, there were more than three, maybe four ways to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich until I went on vacation. You got your choice of bread. It can be white. It can be wheat. It can be nutty oat. You can have the sandwich with crust, without crust. You can have it with lots of peanut butter, not much jelly. You can spread the jelly on one side, the peanut butter on the other side, and if you don't do it exactly that way, it's not made right. Anybody with me? You've been with grandchildren? Or you can mix the peanut butter and the jelly all together, and that's the right way to do it, and you better do it that way, because they can smell it out. I don't know how they do it. Pull it apart, I guess, and look at it. But I mean, it's an ever-loving conniption fit if it's not done that way. I mean, who knew there were more than three or four possible ways to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? I didn't until this week. You ever ordered pizza? And that's just the adults I'm talking about. (laughs) I mean, we're on this trip together. We're eating most of our meals in in the evening. But one special night, we're going out to a restaurant. We have two golf carts rented for the week. One's a four-seater, one's a six-seater. There are nine of us. Who rides in which golf cart? And who gets to sit where in the golf cart? And who gets to sit by whom? Who knew this could be so difficult? Now, where am I going with this? We're a family who chose to go on this vacation together. What was I thinking? I mean, we chose to go on this vacation together, and we really do love each other. I mean, still, even after the vacation, we're still a family intact. And then it occurred to me, Andy, That's why the Bible doesn't point to any human family as the example or the model to follow. It points to the oneness of God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, as the model and the means for us experiencing unity. Listen, when a church experiences unity, it's not because we got a bunch of good folks who signed up. It's because God does a miracle. And there is nothing we can do to create it, but we can mess it up. And if we're going to experience it, and if we're going to enjoy it, we're going to have to work hard at it. 
because it's not automatic and it doesn't come easy and it can be lost just like that. So this morning I'm thinking as I'm reflecting on God's word, I'm thinking of those words of Jesus, how he says our witness to the world depends upon our ability to walk together in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Our witness to the world depends on that. This is how the world will know you are my disciples. If you have love one for another, and if the love of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, as we are one, you are one, that's how you witness to the world. Now, I don't know where you are in your spiritual walk today, your spiritual journey. I can just tell you about mine. Until I met Jesus, my world was utter chaos. Utter chaos. It was a constant yielding to sin and temptation with no defense. And you know what's bad about it? I liked it. Until I realized I didn't have sin, sin had me. And that's what's such a tragedy about being a Christian. It's when we've been fret, set free from sin, but we left off the part about becoming enslaved to God. And I realized this morning there's somebody in here who needs Jesus. And I realized there's somebody in here this morning who's a blood-bought believer in Jesus Christ, and boy, you've just been living as a free agent. You know what I call people who are living, who aren't enslaved to God, who are believers in Christ? I call that a case of temporary insanity. You've forgotten who you are and whose you are. And I think this passage calls us back to that. And Tom, as you're coming here and as we prepare to respond to God as he's spoken to us this morning, let's pray together. Let's stand, may we? Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way it ministers to us and touches us in deep places. And thank you that it does it without partiality, that what you say to us through the Spirit today, the Spirit has a way of applying it to each of us individually, and I'm not going to say that everybody, every part of this message was for everybody, although I believe it was all for me. But I know there's something or some several things that were said this morning that were from you spoken to the heart of these individuals who are here this morning. I pray that you'll... Lord, that you will uh, tattoo that on our hearts. That you will brand us with your brand. And we thank you, Jesus, for that freedom that desires, for the joy that desires, for the happiness that desires, for the peace that desires. Thank you for the work of the Spirit in our lives. And we do worship you and praise you now in Jesus' name.